Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Asian Americans. I'm your host, Jerry Wan. And welcome to the very final episode of May here in 2021 as we wrap up uh, the very historic Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, and appropriately so, on Memorial Day where we honor the legacy and lives of those who gave their ultimate sacrifice to protect all Americans and so that we can have these conversations today. As, as we look back at what this month has meant for so many of us as we've had a chance to share our stories through words and through photos and conversations, it has been truly an honor to have been a voice and, and a platform to share a lot of our stories and to also learn collectively so much of our own histories and lives and communities that we didn't get a chance to do so. Really honored today to share with you the very last We Are APA story in our partnership with McDonald's and hear from Eric Lee photojournalist who, based in D.C., was was able to capture uh, the beautiful stories of Sun Mi, of Kana, of Sapna, and of Carolyn Andrew. Uh, as he's taken pictures, shared their stories, and captured their words, truly an amazing friend and storyteller who you'll see and you'll hear as you listen to his interview, has been able, at, at the intersection, at the cross-section of one of the most important years in American history. And so, so grateful for Eric for what he has done. A big shout out to Izzy, Sid, Jennifer, and everybody else at IW Group, and to our friends at McDonald's who've made all this possible. As we continue beyond APAM, may we never stay silent about our history, about our culture, and about our community. It's such an honor to be here to share these stories with you. Come back tomorrow and for the rest of the year and beyond as we continue to share beautiful Asian American stories that shape all our lives. Thank you so much. And here now is my interview with Eric Lee. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Asian Americans. Hope you are staying safe and hope you are staying healthy uh, in what continues to be a very challenging time for not just us Asian Americans here in America, but Asians globally. And so for all of our friends who have family and friends in other parts of the world who are suffering from COVID, who are suffering from other types of unrest, we wish you peace and we wish you healing. And it certainly does put a lot of what we're doing here in perspective, even though the challenges that we face here, particularly with the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes, are, are putting a lot of our lives at risk. There's other people who are dealing with other types of lack of safety and, and fear. And so wherever you are, uh, wherever you are in your life, we definitely wish you well and want to make sure to continue to keep everybody in, in your thoughts. And so if you've been following us for a while, you know this, at least if you've been following us for the month of May, you definitely know this, but we've been so lucky and, and so blessed to uh, participate with McDonald's in the We Are APA series. And we have the distinct pleasure of amplifying those messages, but the person who got to meet our wonderful guests whose stories that we highlight, one of the two people who have met them to take their photographs and get their words and distill their story and, and synthesize their story so that we can see, read, and hear are our two amazing photographers. Today, we get to hear from our East Coast friend, Eric Lee, who is a Washington, D.C.-based photojournalist, and, and he has had uh, the great chance and opportunity to meet four stories and five people up and down the East Coast. And so we're going to learn all about that and, and how he got involved with our campaign here. But before we do that, as we always do on the show, we'd love to get to know the person first. So Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jerry. It's great to be on Dare Asian Americans. How are you doing? <laughs> I've been, you know, the month of May and, and April, you know, in a freelancer's life has its ups and downs, right, as, as you know. But April and May have been, for the right and wrong reasons, like we were talking about a little bit earlier, just 
it, it's been good. I've been blessed with with work. I feel like more getting more opportunities to tell stories about Asian Americans. It's it's exactly the work that I want to be doing. But I'm sad it comes at the expense of, you know, this significant rise in in hate. Right? It's it's a little it's very upsetting. But I'm just glad that we can be more vocal. We can come together in more ways than than before. I think, and our stories can be out there. I think it's perspective, right? We are being heard for the first time in a very large way, perhaps the busiest APAM that any of us have experienced, really, but not all for the right reasons, right? So, but with all that being said, we take every opportunity that we can to amplify our stories because one, we need to, and then two, we don't know when this time is going to come again. We hope that this is a lasting change in behavior for not just Asian Americans, mm-hmm. um, but all of our friends to make sure that we can continue to share our stories. But so let's let's learn about you. How did the Lee family become Asian American? Tell us about the journey here and, and a little bit about your early life. Yeah, sure. So my my father came here when he was very young from Hong Kong. He immigrated when he was seven and, and raised and Lower Manhattan and Queens and Long Island. His father, my my grandfather, opened up a laundry. So very much through that American dream of work, working hard. My grandmother worked in a factory. She pressed and sewed buttons. And you know, recently, and and I found out that my great grandfather is a paper son. And the idea of buying papers to become American, right, because of the Chinese Exclusion Act at the time, and. I always thought it was my grandfather who was a paper son, but to, to learn that it was my great grandfather who went back earlier to bring the rest of everyone over. I don't know. I've been grappling with with what it means to be even more American in this sense, right? I think there's that stereotype that Asians aren't Americans, and and we even have things right now that we're saying we are American too. And I, I feel very awkward about that phrasing because I do consider myself very American, right? But to look back at my family history and, re- and reconsider what it meant, I'm struggling with that. On my mom's side, she's she's born here. She's the only one in her family of six siblings to be born here. But, you know, growing up, my parents didn't teach me Cantonese. So I had this miscommunication with my, my grandparents and my family and, and their friends and family. So, yeah, I grew up in New York. I played a lot of sports. I, I went to a private school, did a lot of art. As you can tell now, I'm a, a photographer. But I've always, I've always questioned my identity because I was the only Asian student in many of my classes, in many of my grades. I was very much the only Asian boy as well. And growing up, I felt very isolated, right? Not having any mentors or, or teachers or anyone that looked like me who had experiences like me. So I was constantly trying to search for that. Ended up going to, to college in Pennsylvania, but it was the same experience there. One of a handful of Asian students and even on campus above, you know, one grade above me, there was a, another Asian student, another Asian guy from, from New York as well. We both had shaved heads. And I just remember the first time I stepped on the campus, someone came up to me and was like, hey, like, what's the econ homework? I'm like, I haven't even declared my major yet. Like, I don't, I'm not in your class. And and very much, they he really thought that I was this other Asian student. It, professors, colleagues, whoever else, like everyone just thought we were the same person. And I, you know, I, I think at the time, like, oh, it's it's kind of funny, right? Like, like you just haven't had the exposure to, to Asian people. So we, we went with it from time to time, but it, it did get infuriating. And so, you know, I've, I've always been questioning my identity and then I ended up studying film in my undergraduate degree. And yeah, now, now I'm a photographer. I went to grad school for photojournalism. I did my thesis, my, my, my thesis there on Asian American boyhood mm-hmm. because I've been so curious about what it meant, right, through my childhood. 
And that's where like, I really dug deep asking my family about why they raised me the way they did. Because I'm curious about how generations will begin passing down identities. Because you always hear about, you know, right, first generation, second generation, we're losing language. And I'm already feeling that, you know, that that loss of trait and character. So, right, will my my kids not be able to speak? Well, will that make me any less Asian American? So I've been I've been really grappling with these questions as I've I've begun to search for myself. Thank you for sharing that. And there are so many things. I think we can have like a 10-hour conversation on just what you shared because, <laughs> I mean, so let, let's talk about sort of the identity change as a part of what was then and we don't agree now, you do what you had to do for your family. Mm-hmm. We also know how important legacy and heritage and names are in our collective Asian American Asian cultures because it has so much meaning. I know maybe too early to process perhaps, but knowing what you know now, have you thought about uh, changing your name back to what it originally was in terms of, you know, giving that honor back or do, how, how do you see that? And I don't want to pose it in a way that if you don't, that you're not paying, you know, homage to it because this is a name that you've known all your life and you, you as a, a creative professional, with his own personal brand, this, you know, Eric Lee means something to certain people, but, but share with us sort of, you know, has that changed the way that you view yourself and in any way since you found that out? Yeah. You know, I, I haven't given any thought to trying to change my name back, back to that name. It is something that all my cousins on my, my dad's side is all part, part of our name, a middle name that we have. So there is a connection that we all share that way. I, I think Eric Lee is, you're right, as a creative professional, that's the name that I, I have been called my entire life, right? No one actually calls me Eric. Everyone calls me Eric Lee, and it's become synonymous. And And I've grown to really appreciate that in, in a way because it, it's it's part of me. But, you know, one of the people I met on this McDonald's project was Carol Chen. And, and you know, she came from Hong Kong. And her story, she went through Venezuela and then eventually United States. But we were talking and she asked me about my family history and where my family came from. And she was like, oh, the Lees, I know they're over in this village. And and for me, I had a disconnect there with her. I was like, oh, wait, but I actually, you know, it's different because that's the given name I had when my great grandparents came here to the United States. Wow. Man, that's something I, I, I won't understand. I think I know of Asian families who've changed their names to westernize. Uh, to prevent discrimination. Obviously, there are, are more cases in your situation where they bought papers to come into the country and maybe they never share it, right? Maybe the adults never share it because let's assume that it's safe to do so right now and, and to talk about it. But maybe when it was closer to it happening, you, you never really wanted to mm-hmm. disclose it. And so thanks for that. The identity piece, particularly you going to college, I think is something that so many of us experience where we get mistaken for the other Asian or in so many cases, if there's just a few Asians in a group, they'll just assume that let's say there was, you know, somebody of the opposite gender, that somehow that you automatically too should date. And, you know, there's all these things that I think we, we grow up with, and particularly when you're one of the only or one of the few in, in certain areas. When did you really realize that you could use the power of the camera to change storytelling? Because coming from 
marginalization or coming to make feel like you didn't matter because you were constantly being confused for somebody else or that we could all sort of be interchangeable, right? Because that's what happens when somebody calls you something else. And, and before we talk about some of the, just the amazing photos that you've taken, like when did you realize that you had so much power with that? And, and you said you, you went to grad school for photojournalism. So you took it seriously enough to make it a master craft, but was it a particular photo that you took that spoke to you? Tell us about that story. Yeah. You know, I, I, I did not take photojournalism very seriously. I think until I, I went to grad school. During my undergrad years, my mom really wanted me to be in healthcare. You know, I, it, it's she's a so, social worker, so she's very comfortable in the hospital. So for three years, I, I was a pre-health major, and it wasn't until my junior year that I switched to stu study film. For my capstone there, I wanted to look at the stereotype of masculinity amongst Asian American men. And the more I dove into a documentary about exploring this, the more I, I didn't understand, right? The more I felt even more, I felt more lost um, amongst all the amount of information that I was learning from interviews because I was like, people, people have similar experiences, right? I can never have these conversations growing up. So I pocketed that idea and, and just did a narrative piece for my capstone. And it wasn't until, you know, going to graduate school that I actually finally felt comfortable that, hey, stories on Asian Americans are important. As an Asian American storyteller, I'm allowed to photograph my community and I was welcome to do so. And, you know, for two years I worked on this, this project and it was being welcomed into the fams, the family that I photographed, they're Vietnamese American, that they made me feel comfortable to, to let the camera be free around them. And so that that made me really, that I think that was the turning point where I was like, okay, I can actually do this and it's accepted and it's welcomed and it's needed. I want to take a quick pause and I, I, we, I think we make the assumption that everybody knows our, our lingo. And so... Mm -hmm. Most people know photographer, it's one who mm. takes photos. Most people know journalist, it's one who tells stories with words. What is a photojournalist and, and what does that title mean for you? Oh, man. You know, I think that that phrase is ever evolving, right? And in, in, in social media today and, and because of how many photos and visuals we have. But, you know, at its core of photojournalists is, is one that documents scenes as they are, right? We're not photoshopping, we're not changing, we're not asking anyone to do anything but photographing scenes as they are to tell the story of, of what's happening. So you see these photos on the front pages of newspapers and, and online, and they could be horrific scenes. They can be beautiful scenes. They could be your everyday scene. And it's just ways to convey news and information sometimes that words can't do. But as a photojournalist, of, of course, we, we have to be skilled in, in making sure we're writing all the captions and, and getting names and information so it's accurate and true. We have to be able to do, you know, video and, and audio, all all tools that we need to convey the story better to a wider audience. I'm going to brag about you for a second. Your photos have been featured in global and, and very well-established publications such as The Atlantic, Bloomberg, The Intercept, National Geographic, New York Magazine, New Yorker, NPR, the list goes on and on and on. What is the photo that you're most proud of? Oh man, I think each each project I have a different photo that really I'm most proud of. But the one that always comes to mind is from my thesis project, where we're really from, 
and it's a panorama of the family that I was talking about, the fams, and they're on the beach. And on one end of the panorama is the parents watching the boys who are brothers looking out at the ocean. And I love that because of what we were talking about earlier about generations and passing down and let legacy and there's so much distance between them in the photo, but yet they're connected through this through through this image itself. And so that's the one that, that always pulls at me that, that I love to talk about. I'm I'm looking at it now. I'm gonna link it uh in the show notes for people who have no idea what Eric and I are talking about right now, but but you got to see this photo. And we don't see a lot of panorama photos anymore. I, you know, to completely date myself, back when I was growing up, panorama cameras were really cool, but they would print on like eight and eight by ten, mm-hmm. and then just cut the top and cut the bottom, so you'd end up having panoramic photographs were right. basically just super wide angle with, you know, it was blacked out on top and the bottom. I, I want to talk to you sort of about the empowerment and sort of what you've learned in the last year. We're sitting here in May. And if we go back to last May, we, we certainly did not know how the world would change in so many different ways. You happen to live in Washington, D.C., which has been the epicenter of so much activity, both empowering and concerning. One, one look at your Instagram or certainly, you know, one deep dive into your your website we see so many photographs from let, let's start with the black lives matter movement what would convince you to get out there and what did you learn yeah i mean last may i i finished my my grad program and i presented my thesis and you know i the day i graduated i was like okay what's what's next right and that's when george floyd was killed by minneapolis police and people just started to gather in a historically black neighborhood here in dc on U Street, and I, I knew it was important to be there. The energy felt different than, than it has before. And I think for, for 20 plus days, I went out every day to photograph. Oh. I, I clocked over 250 miles in the month of June, but I really was out there because you know, as an Asian American, I've, I've always been questioning too, the idea of like, where are Asian Americans in dialogue around race and ethnicity? You know, to say that we're we're neglected is is one thing, but I, I think there's a long history of Asian American and Black solidarity. I mean, we we've talked about the term right being coined because it comes from the Black Power movement. So I, I really felt res- a responsibility to be present, to listen to people, to give perspective that wasn't just the violence that we saw or that's put out there, that there needed to be photos of hope and compassion and understanding. I think that's what drove me to continue being out there. And even still until 2021, there's still protests happening in DC that I attend and photograph. I, 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 you know, I am in contact and have conversations with organizers and other journalists in the area too, about locally what's been happening as well. But yeah, it's, it's just, making sure that these stories are are being heard. That's what keeps me going out. Many of the photographs you took are candid of of large group shots. Many of the most important ones, or at least the most powerful ones for me, are the ones where people posed for you. What types of conversations did you have with those people? And how did they see, did did they notice that it was an Asian man out there documenting and then trying to provide a voice for for many people who felt that they don't have a voice in any of this? Mm. I think in classical photojournalism, there's the idea that just put the camera in someone's face or put the camera in someone's space in general and just and just make the photo. With the protests that happened last summer and last year, 
there's been a real shift, I think, in that that ethic that right, as an Asian American, I know this this isn't this isn't my space to be in, right? I'm I'm a guest here. So my job is to li- listen first, to hear you first, and then of course I'm asking for consent. Even on a lot of the candidates, actually, I make eye contact with whoever I'm photographing just to say, hey, like, is this cool with you? Because I want you to be portrayed the way you want to be seen. And I want you to feel heard. You know, some people don't want to be photographed or they don't want to give their name. And that's, of course, that's that's okay with me. But I, I, I'm not sure if people saw me as, as that Asian American photographer out there. I think they, I don't know. I, yeah, I honestly, I haven't had that many conversations about that element of it. But looking ahead, that was something I worried about on January 6th. Yeah. And I covered that at the Capitol. Um, I think those, yeah. I mean, it's almost, it's the same city, right? Mm. Maybe just a few blocks from one another. The, these photos could not be any more different. Tell us about that experience because some of these photos, man, you were you, you were almost climbing that wall yourself, it seems like. It's that close. I mean, different mindset, right? Must be, tell us about the different mindset because it seems like in May, you said, I have to go out. You went on for almost a month straight. Was this any different before deciding to go out? Yeah, I mean, this this one I was assigned to cover. I do a lot of work with Bloomberg. And that morning, I covered the White House. I covered Pre- President Trump speaking. I covered Giuliani. And it was, I, I knew the energy was, was going to be different because I photographed the first March in D.C. back in November after the election. And the amount of Proud Boys that came into town, the amount of people marching down, you know, down the street, you know, it was, it got violent, it got rowdy, it, it, it was, but it mainly stayed to one area and, and it resolved itself in a way. But as soon as Rudy Giuliani said trial by combat, and as soon as Trump said he was going to march with them down, down the street, I knew it would be different. All while, you know, Donald Trump is calling out the China virus. He is calling out the press and have everyone boo at, at those those phrases. And for me, as a Asian American, specifically Chinese American photographer who's a member of the media, it's it's like I'm wearing a target on my back. Um, walking down the street, very aware that I look Asian. I'm wearing a mask, and that at any point, someone who is just upset, who, who has these beliefs, could turn and harass me, attack me, and not just take my cameras or anything like that, but 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 seriously because they hate me for whatever reason. So I, yeah, I was I was I was very I think it was the most scared I've been in in a scenario that I I've ever covered. Were there specific conversations you had? Were there moments where people said stuff to you cuz mask or not, pe- people still can see you. Right. You know, surprisingly no. Wow. I I didn't. Yeah, I didn't have any bad experience in terms of, of, you know, the way I look or anything. I'm not sure if it's because I'm a guy. You did know, you have press uh, credentials? Did you, did they know that this wasn't, that you were out doing your job? Yeah. I, I you know, I, I told people that I was with, with Bloomberg. I, okay. I had press credential out. I did talk to a few people around me. I was, you know, you try, you try to diffuse a, a scenario and just say, wow, this is, you know, this is something I've never seen before. This is intense, you know, and, and, Usually they're like, yeah, this is, this is great. I'm here. I drove from Alabama or drove from, you know, Texas. And, and a lot of people came. I, I met a lot of people from all over the United States who just wanted to be, to be at the Capitol that, that day. 
Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for, for capturing both of these historic moments, both which I personally will never want to see again, whether it is yeah. marching because another black man was unjustly murdered at the hands of police or because terrorists are trying to take over our most sacred government buildings. And glad you were there, there to capture it. So so let's bring this into 2021. You, you've done significant work, both in, in, in your current hometown of Washington, D.C., but also we see a lot of photographs from Chinatowns up and down the East Coast, Times Square in, in certain cases. You've been at a lot of these Stop Asian Hate or you know Asian American empowerment rallies. We obviously understand the the desire to go. What, what did you learn from being out there and talking to people? Yeah. I think for me, it goes back to having grown up in New York as, as one of a few Asians by my school. I, I don't know why, but I was a little surprised when all these rallies began to happen. And I was pl- pleasantly surprised, right, that people can come together that there's a want to come together, you know, specifically in New York, covering the Columbus Park rally and just seeing, you know, people of all different ages and, and ethnicities and, and backgrounds. And that really made me surprised, but also very happy at the same time. You know, working these events, it's, I get very one, one-minded sometimes because I have to finish and photograph and make sure the captions are correct. <laughs> but... <laughs> Which is, it's very hard sometimes to, to write and photograph at the same time. But yeah, I just, I, I really enjoyed speaking with, with so many people who were, were also no, no, noticing the same things, right? Of, of how many people were coming out to support. Because I think for so long, people have felt on, you know, not heard, not seen, but to have major news outlets, to have their neighbors, their friends, their family, their communities being there with that was really empowering. You know, we, we talked about this at the top of the show, but it's just this almost really grateful that we get to have a voice. But the circumstances surrounding the whole thing are just gut wrenching, right? Part of me personally likes to think that making sure that we stay loud and mm-hmm. using all the different platforms that we have at our disposal for you, it's the camera, for me, it's the microphone to never stop doing what we're doing so that one day, our kids don't have to talk about this in the same way that we're doing it. Mm-hmm. We need them to talk about it because it is a part of all Asian, all American kids should talk about this moment because it is a part of pivotal American history, but not with so much recency of the pain. And so let, let's bring this discussion to how you and I came into each other's lives. How, how did, you know, I guess before we want to uh, give a big, big shout out to our friends at the IW group. In particular, Izzy, who's been working nonstop around the clock, making sure that we look good. And so thank you, Izzy, for all that you're doing behind the scenes. How, how did they? How did the team approach you? And, and what were some of your earlier thoughts when uh, you were asked to photograph and to share Asian American stories for the We Are APA campaign? Yeah. Now, initially, actually, a friend, another Asian photographer on Instagram that, you know, we're, we're, we're connected there. She put me in touch um, with, with IW Group. And they reached out and initially the project was just going to be one, one person in New York. And eventually it blew up to covering this East coast you know, area, which I couldn't be more happy because, you know, we, we talk about in photojournalism having projects, right? Like I did my thesis on Asian American boyhood, but that's one family in Gaithersburg, right? My, my ultimate dream is to be able to travel around the United States you know, to the Northeast, to the Midwest, to the West, South, wherever, and photograph Asian communities. Because 
we are American, right? We we have such a long history here and we're making history here. And so when they reached out about about covering specifically the East Coast, I was I was thrilled to be a part of the project. And I got to say, because, you know, I, I've been a part of the conversations throughout. And one of the things that we learned in progress was we can travel, but can't jump on an airplane. And so you made this work. And then obviously they had to make sure that you were bought into it. But, you know, all, all the way from Sunmi and Baltimore, all the way up to the Chin family in Boston, you, you jumped on trains and on cars to make this work. So what did you hear on the road? We know what we see. And by the time this episode airs, all seven of these stories will have aired on the Dear Asian Americans Instagram. And you can see their faces, read their words, and also hear their voices. But as photojournalism goes, this is the synthesized version. You've taken yeah. dozens of, you spent hours with these folks, taken dozens of these photographs, shared hours of conversation, and we can only share so much. What, what are some things that you collectively remember and that you process and sort of think about now that this has all happened already? Yeah. I've been thinking about a lot how location plays a role in our identity, how localized a community can impact someone. And, and I'm thinking specifically of, of Sun Mi, who, who's been in Baltimore since college as a queer trans cartoonist, just taking from their own identities to create their work. And, and you know, while our mediums are very different, it's like, okay, we, we share that in common, right? That we, we share looking at ourselves to create work in the hopes that others can connect with it. It was even looking at the Chin family. Carol specifically has a jade bracelet on her wrist. And it's something my my grandmother wore, it's something my mom wears. And right, and that jade bracelet is one that goes on very young and you grow with it your whole life, right? You can mm -hmm. never take it off. And I, I'm just so curious about the stories that bracelet could tell, right? Sapna is one of the first female pundadas, right? Or, or Hindi priests in the DMV area that conducts weddings and ceremonies. And, you know, she showed me a ceremony because there's a lot of new things happening in her life. And so for her to let me in, the photograph that felt very intimate and special. And she even tied a piece of yarn around my wrist to sim symbolize that we were, we shared that experience together. And then Kana, actually, I recently learned in, in New York is a friend of my cousin's who's an actor mm. as well. So the world just, it, it feels so big, but all these small mi micro moments make it feel really small for me and that our communities are really interconnected. I think there's also this notion that you mentioned this phrase earlier, and I and I struggle with it too, this sort of, we are American too, almost as if we have to continue to prove Americanness, whether it is by anything, right? Whether the clothes we wear, the things we say, or the things that we don't say even, you know, mm -hmm. as some, a lot of our, I guess, efforts to assimilate are often associated with the erasure of some things that make our culture very unique. I, I can personally attest to how American, the McDonald's brand's, was viewed from my perspective. You know, I, I grew up in Korea until I was eight. And so the last birthday, I think it was the last birthday. I got to check with my parents. You know, we, we celebrated at the local McDonald's in Korea, which was sort of like the American birthday party, right? And for those of you that have no idea what a McDonald's birthday party feels like, it was like a big deal in Korea. Like we got to walk into the, the walk-in freezers and stuff. And like, who does that, right? It, it does. <laughs> and I guess by the time this airs, if you go to my personal Instagram page, you'll see some photos I'll share. And with this project, it's 
the quintessential American brand's investment in amplifying our stories, right? Like, what does that mean for you? And are there like McDonald's stories that come to mind for you? Because you you said you grew up in a town where there wasn't a lot of you. And even through Mm -hmm. college, there was just so many or so few other Asian Americans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, growing up, in New York, you know, I, I, whenever I was sick, I went to my grandmother's and she lived in Chinatown and, and there's, there's McDonald's on Canal Street. And every time we get out of the train, it was always stopping McDonald's to get breakfast <laughs> and to go over. And then in the afternoon, my aunt would always come visit her to drop off groceries or food or whatever else. And every time she'd come over, she brought me a happy meal. She knew I was there. And I have more McDonald's stories, right? Like every road trip, we stopped at McDonald's to eat and my dad got the Big Mac. But back to your, your question about being a being an owner. For for Carol, when I talked to her, she was really proud to be one of the first. To be one of the first, especially in Boston, where there is a thriving Chinese community and Asian community. And she used that to kind of network with the city in that way and bring the community together together now they have you know upwards of almost seven i think mcdonald's in the area and just expanded operations but it was pretty pretty amazing to hear that success story of hers for andrew you know he's a former baseball player he played uh, pro ball for the yankees and i think it was lately he got into being part of mcdonald's there and yeah it's been it's been great to hear their story i think it's so interesting i think the rest of the world really associates McDonald's with America. And I mm-hmm. certainly did as a kid growing up in Korea. But, you know, through, through this partnership and, and through this project that we were both lucky to work on, it sort of helps us understand what its impact is on Americans mm-hmm. of Asian descent and other folks that I think, again, just, you know, and, and I think when we hear the word American from an Asian perspective, we don't think of people like me and you, right? Because to, to you know, perhaps our distant cousins or our distant family members back home, we're, we're Chinese, we're Korean. We're not mm-hmm. American in their in their mind. So what's the coolest part about this whole thing? You, you spent many days on the road meeting people, taking photographs. You went through the process, you know, working with the team to pick out the ones that you wanted to be featured. You had to synthesize again, sort of the many long conversations into just a few short paragraphs. And pick the one thing to put into the video at the end of the the swipe series to, to get there so we can hear from their voice. And you've had to do that four times. What, what did you, you know, was there something that you wish you could have gotten out there or collectively speaking, what's the one thing that you remember from this? When they reached out, it was initially to do, you know, across the country, right. And photograph all around and, you know, disappointed that I couldn't travel to California or Texas or wherever else, but it would have been a lot more flying and and trains. I mean, but it was just great to have so many conversations and be refreshed and hear so many perspectives from the diverse group of people that we had to speak to. At the beginning of the project, actually, I was also tasked with finding a few people. And Sunmi is actually someone that I was connected to through a, a mutual friend. And so it was great that, that you can actually bring that personal relationship into something because you can get a little bit deeper, right, than, than someone you're meeting for the first time. The other element I loved about this project is that I, I kind of had free reign to do what I wanted to photograph, right? 
as a photojournalist, as a documentarian, we're not altering scenes. So we're letting the people be in their natural element. We're letting them be how they look, how they would dress on a normal day. And and you really, I think, you can capture something a little more authentic that way. And and for me to be invited into homes, into into art making spaces, into their business, I mean, how how special to be part of that. And and that you know, we also did interviews with with each person, as you've been hearing on on the last uh, slide. And those interviews actually originally were only supposed to be like 10, 15 minutes. But of course, they turn into 45 to an hour and a half because we have so much to say, yeah. right? And so if if there's only things I could do, I wish I could do more is I wish I could do more. I can interview more people. I wish I could photograph more. I wish I can have longer and even more conversations with because everyone has something so unique about them and i love that right we're not a monolith there's there are so many stories out there that aren't told and i just hope we can do more of these in the future start a podcast man is what we do (laughs) (laughs) um it's a lot of work man podcast it it is it is but you know it's we we capture it live, you know, in, in the moment too, right? And mm-hmm. people who've listened to us for a while also know we don't do a whole lot of editing. We don't. The goal isn't to make it sound so chopped up that you only hear the highlight reel, right? We mm-hmm. we generally we take out all the ums and the silences and the watch them college, but by and large, you'll hear ninety five percent of what's said. And so, you know, just like you do with your camera, we try to capture sort of the authentic thought process. Of the entire conversation. And, and I have to agree with you. You know, I had the great fortune of having two friends, friends of friends, who are the two sub- two of the three subjects from the West Coast, Steve and Mike, that the IW team. And again, shout out to Izzy, not just Izzy, but Sid and to Jennifer, who, who works so tirelessly, continue to work tirelessly on this, that they thought that they'd be a really great match. And both of their uh, stories have been shared already. And the amount of just somebody thought that my story mattered enough to come and take pictures of me, to spend time with me. For all these people, they're just doing their thing. They're mm-hmm. they're living their their lives there, whether it's coaching basketball or running a business or creating artwork, they're just doing their thing. And so I, I often hear it, you know, during the work that I do, I'm sure you do as well, Eric, just letting somebody know that their story matters, I think actually is one of the most precious gifts that we all have the power to give, but we don't do enough of. Because mm-hmm. it's so easy to ask questions because that's all we do right? right tell me about you tell me about your family what are your dreams what are your fears and then we capture it sometimes in photographs sometimes in audio clips and we get to share it with the world and i don't think and i'm still and i believe you are and emmanuel is and everybody else still on our own journey as well as storytellers but the amount of not you know, just the amount of power that we have to help amplify stories that otherwise would never have been heard, I think is 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 so gratifying, but also, you know, comes with great responsibility. And yes. so what what is next for you? You you've done so much already. Your your photos have told the stories of perhaps the three biggest events that have happened in America in the last calendar in the last year, what, what, what do you want to, you know, how do you want to change the world with your camera? What, what is next for Eric Lee? Yeah, my, my partner is from Broomfield, Colorado. And so I think with COVID, you know, we live with my parents for a little bit. I think it's, it's my turn to live with her parents for a little bit. And so we're going to drive out to Broomfield, which is between Denver and Boulder. 
And I'm actually hoping to speak to Japanese Americans out there, people who, you know, decided to reside in Colorado after internment mm-hmm. uh, because there, there was an internment camp out there. And how has that changed their identity? Has that uh, changed how they look at the space? So I'm, I'm curious about all these, you know, it's, it's a different place. Like we were talking about location, how that affects identity. So I just have a lot of questions and, and I'm hoping to connect with people. But yeah, it's nice to slow down a little bit right now and, and focus on projects <laughs> that I wish I could do more of. Yeah, where, wherever the wind takes me. <laughs> That's awesome, man. A dear friend of mine, a dear friend of the show, and actually former guest of the show, so much so that he actually has his own show on our network, Nathan Nowak, who was one of the three hosts of the Chanchi show, just moved to Broomfield. Oh, wow. Uh, last month. And so he's a <laughs> photographer by trade as well. He, oh he takes our family photos. And so you, you'll definitely have to hook up with Nathan when you get out there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He might not know so many people around. He just moved there as well. But, you know, uh, he did go to college out there as well. So, Nathan, if you're listening, I just made you a new friend. Help us finish out the show. You know, we, we, we finish out the show in the same way every episode, which goes back to the name of our show. It's the Eurasian Americans. And this whole thing is a letter to us from us. More specifically, it's a letter to my daughter, our collective kids, and, and the future of Asian America to leave the stories that you and I didn't share. You shared stories of you feeling alone and feeling othered and feeling mistaken for other people. And I always wonder, what if we had more of our stories growing up? What if we had other things to shape our identity and what was possible rather than what was so much localized? As you've had said many times, what if we use the power of the internet and the global landscape to infuse our world, our Asian American world with so many of our stories so that no matter where you grow up now, if you're the next generation, no more excuses about not having the right influence. We're going to find you. And yeah. so this entire project, this entire podcast and show has been about sharing those stories. And I am so grateful that you are on this show. I am, I am so grateful that we've been brought together by this really, really cool project. And so would love to ask you to help us finish the show by sharing a letter of your own. And so I will start. And if you could help us finish out the show by completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Sure. Dear Asian Americans, we are going through such a difficult time with so much hate, so much confusion, lack of empathy. But I think it's important that we come together and keep a glimmer of hope, keep asking questions about each other, keep asking how we are, keep lit listening to your friends and neighbors, keep learning and being open to learning. Keep making pictures because we're going through history. And these are pictures that your kids and their kids will want to hold on to. These are moments that hopefully won't happen again. So when they ask you what it was like, you can tell them your story. And you can tell them your friend's story and your family's story because those are the ones that they'll cherish forever. It's why I'm so grateful my grandparents gave me their photo album, why my parents gave me their photos. Even though it's film, <laughs> you might not have film anymore in the future. But hold on to those and and keep looking at them because it's a, it's a part of you as much part of me 
part of each other. Be hopeful. Thanks, Eric. As you were sharing, I just thought of one additional question to ask. So you you (laughs) specialize in taking photos that you want to last for many, many lifetimes in, in perpetuity. So much of our world socially centers around apps and things where things are designed to be mm-hmm. in the moment or algorithms are, you know, it's all designed by business, right? It, it's all attention mm-hmm. and, and new, what's new, what's fresh. It's it's the short attention and new cycle. What is your suggestion or words to folks to change their mindset from taking pictures so I guess to put it in Instagram-friendly terms, how do we get the folks who love taking photos for their stories to instead taking photos to leave in their feed so that it lasts longer and so that they can remember it? Because I see so many amazing things about people's lives that we can't get back to, right? Because they mm-hmm. leave it on platforms that just go, whether mm-hmm. Snapchat, TikTok, or Instagram stories, or what other variation have you. As somebody who makes his livelihood and his gift is taking photos to memorialize forever. What What is the power that people can feel for themselves in taking, viewing photos as permanent signs rather than temporary things? Yeah. The one step, you know, I'm thinking of is Instagram lets you put up to 10 photos, right? In, in one post. And if you're on vacation, if you're taking photos and having that first dinner with family after being vaccinated, take photos of the food, take photos of the setup, take photo, take group photos and put them all together because there is so much power in one photo. Imagine sharing it in 10, right? And then the next step I would say is for people to print their photos, print out the, the 15 best ones, right? And, and while, you know, we all were pained back in pre-COVID days when people would show you, you know, 500 photos from the family trip. Now it's, it's something I think as we get older, it's something we cherish, right? Like, oh my God, like, look how my parents saw. Look how my, my grandparents saw the world. And do that with your friends too and, and have print exchanges, right? We all, we all have wall space. It's just hang something up, hang something on the fridge with, with each other and and cherish something that you can actually hold and it won't just go away because you, you scrolled up. So that's Thanks, my su- su- suggestion. Yeah. No, thank you. I, I went back to my, my parents' house a little while ago to dig up the, uh, the seven year old Jerry's McDonald's birthday party pictures. And it's nice because you don't, you don't, you don't see it. Of course, you should digitize them so that they last and you protect them, mm-hmm. you know, against wearage. But I, I think, you know, I, I think things that we cherish now are, are more tangible than ephemeral more tactical than digital. And so thank you for what you were doing in capturing not just Asian American stories, but Asian stories, American stories, and really helping the rest of the world see what you get to see. And so again, really grateful to have met through this process. Never put down your camera, never stop sharing our stories and wishing you health and safety in reunions with your own family, your partner's family, and hoping that we can celebrate all of these wonderful things in person very soon, Eric. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Jerry. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to my story with Eric. What a beautiful story. And I'm so grateful that he was where he was and took the photos that he did to share with us, not just Asian American stories, but the American historical moments that he was able to capture. If you enjoyed the story, please share it out onto your social media platforms. Tag us, tag Eric where you can. 
And go to his website right now or go to his Instagram and take a look at all the photos that he has uh, shared. Support him in his work by following, by commenting, but also uh, refer him opportunities and to hire him if you are able to. We are at Dear Asian Americans on Instagram and at Dear Asian M on Twitter. You can email us at all times, hello at DearAsianAmericans.com if you are looking to chat or if you want to share something with us. Again, big thank you to our friends at McDonald's and to IW Group who have been so supportive in amplifying Asian American stories all month through the We Are APA campaign. And it's been an honor to be able to share these stories with you all. Signing off in the last day of Asian Pacific American Heritage Month here in 2021, I am your host, Jerry Wan, and wishing you health, safety, and happiness.